Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. The most terrifying thing about terrorists is the degree to which they're normal. Um, there is a belief that terrorists are crazy, they're insane, they're drug addicts, uh, mommy used to beat them and daddy didn't love them and their sister was a hooker or something like that. And there's that belief that that's where terrorism comes from. Untrue. Um, most terrorists are terrifyingly normal. So when you actually meet some of these guys, if you sit through a forensic interview, which I've done on a couple of cases, what terrifies you is how incredibly normal they are and how they can walk down the street and nobody sees them. So if you were to define, like, for give, give, us, give us some skills that we can use. Like, if you're talking to someone, how would you, A, apply subtle pressure to get them to tell you the truth or to tell you something new? And B, how would you determine if they were lying or telling the truth? Like, what would you do? Okay, just a fun example. It's always it's always good to give it's examples. a fun example of torture. Uh, no, I mean, a fun example where torture wasn't used and it worked. Or a, a form of pressure was put on somebody. So during the first Gulf War, there was an Iraqi general captured in Kuwait. When they, you know, the Iraq had gone into Kuwait, captured the place, taken out of where uh, Western forces went in. And they managed to grab this one Iraqi general who they knew was important. They knew that this guy had insider knowledge that they wanted. So the first thing is, like, how do we get this guy? How are we going to talk to him? So they isolated him, stuck him in a room, cut him off from the world entirely, made sure he got no news. And then they created a narrative around him and said, you're going to tell us this, you're going to tell us that, or we're going to be bad to you. And, of course, he was saying, I'm not telling you anything. And then... They said, all right, we're bringing in the specialist. You're going to be tortured. It's going to be hot knives and electricity and all this stuff to try and put fear into them. And then they pulled a funny trick on them. All right, Jay, you tell me when. So excited to have... Tom Quiggin on. I'll describe in a second, but uh, welcome, Tom. Welcome to the show. James, thanks for the invite. It's wonderful to be here. So so a lot of people were telling me I had to have you on the podcast. I had to have you on the podcast. And then when I looked you up, uh, I was amazed by your background. You have such a varied background. You were uh, 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 in a high-ranking intelligence official. You've, you've been in uh, the United Nations Protection Force in Yugoslavia. Of course, you work for the Canadian Armed Forces. You've You've uh, you were in the International War, War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which I want to ask you about. You worked for the the Central Bank of Canada. Uh, you were even in the police. You've you you've done everything. But let me ask first: Canadian intelligence isn't that an oxymoron? No. <laughs> 
That's always the standard joke. Is yeah, I, I mean, I, I know come, I come originally that. from military intelligence, but I always look at it and go, well, talk to me about you know in, academic integrity. It's the same thing. So, anyway, so, uh, no, but but. Uh, Answer me honestly. How many times have you heard that joke? I feel bad now. It's a cliche. Uh, I couldn't tell you. Hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds. Oh my god. So so why do you why do you want to get into all this? What was your first What was your first interest? My first interest as a kid growing up was taking stuff apart. It drove my parents to distraction. I took the lawnmower apart when nobody was looking. I would take kitchen appliances apart because I wanted to know how things together? work. Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes <laughs> no. Varying degrees of success. Um, but my interest is always in how do things work? And I always want to ask questions. People say, well, this is a tradition. And I go, when did it start? How did it start? Why do we do it? And people go, because. And to me, that was never an effective answer. I always wanted to know why. So for whatever reason, when I was born, I was stuck with a why question in my head. I want to know why things work, how they work, and I want to take stuff apart. And at a mechanical level, I mean, it got me into drag racing and all that kind of stuff at one point in my life. But on an intellectual level, it's the same process. When I see an intellectual process at work, like the impeachment hearings, I want to know how that's working, why is it working, et cetera, et cetera. I always want to see what the, what the man is behind the curtain and what he's doing. So that's what drove my life is the question of how does stuff work? And I've always wanted to be a part of it. So my earlier career, when I got out of, uh, you know, got out of my parents' house, got out of town, whatever, I was in the military. Uh, I wound up doing uh, anti-submarine anti warfare, electronic warfare and search and rescue in the world of heavy helicopters. So this is operating in the North Atlantic, the English Channel, the well, American. So can I ask about that? So what, what does it mean? So so a helicopter got gets shot down in the North Atlantic and you search for it? No, or? we'd operate in heavy helicopters and we would do anti-submarine warfare. We're looking at, this is back in the days of the Soviet Union. We're looking for Soviet missile carrying submarines coming across the Atlantic and the attack submarines to protect them. So we were doing screening work against that. We're also doing electronic warfare because that's a part of surviving in that environment. And then because that helicopter is the only helicopter that could operate in those kinds of environments all day, all night, all weather, we also did a lot of uh, open ocean search and rescue. Were there uh, a lot of Soviet submarines going past the halfway mark? At the time, there was. There was something called the GI-UK gap, which was sort of that gap between Great Britain, Greenland, and Iceland sort of thing, and that was kind of seen as a starting line for where they would come across. Would they so, come, yeah. like, across the North Pole somehow, or, you know, uh, underneath the North Pole? They not necessarily the North Pole, but they'd come through, like, Greenland, Iceland, the United Kingdom, that gap through there. And I don't know, most people may be not aware of it at the time, but Soviet strategic missile-carrying submarines would regularly operate off the American and Canadian coast. And these are the kind of submarines that can literally take out cities. I don't so, mean one city. I mean multiple cities with one submarine. And I'm, I'm sorry to always interrupt, but uh, you're, you are throwing so much information, and I get, I get curious. Like you, I want to figure things out. So we threw such a shit fit in the Bay of Pigs, like, oh, they're putting nuclear weapons on Cuba, which, by the way, they, they should have done that, and they did the right thing. I mean, the U.S., but why didn't we, here we had uh, nuclear submarines, you're saying right off the coast of uh, Canada and for all I know, New York City. Why didn't we do anything about it then, even though we were aware? We were. I mean, we were doing something. We were, you know, quite often we would signal to them we knew they were there. We would drop sonoboys on them. We would ping them or something like that just to say, hey, we know you're there. We know you're operating, whatever. And But I mean, the the problem was, I mean, the greatest threat to society ever, the greatest threat to the world ever, probably was the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came literally that far from toasting the planet. Uh, and I don't say that in a light-hearted light or offhand kind of way. Like, we came that far from toasting the planet. One of the things that got learned from that is we need to handle this kind of problem better. So during the 70s and into the 80s, uh, that confrontation was handled in a different way. It was a, It's a great tactical game. It's a grand strategic game. But it was played very much for real. We were literally out there at the front lines hunting these kinds of submarines down, tracking them. But, uh, but but again, but why did we let, I mean, you're saying we notified them, 
but still, if they want to, if they, if if it was all systems go, or if somebody accidentally uh, hit a red button, and there were times when there were false alerts on either side, uh, why didn't why did we allow these nuclear submarines to to be so close? To have physically forced them out or to have attacked them probably would have started World War Three. Hmm. Uh, we never had a nuclear war. Uh, for the same reason we may never actually get a crypto war, uh, in the sense that every time you game out a nuclear war, it ends the same way. The planet is toasted flat and there are no winners. By the way, a crypto war is probably much the same thing. No one Tom knows how it's going to work, but we won't get into that. I told you, no crypto. No crypto. Well, okay, maybe we'll drop the, the crypto. No crypto. <laughs> okay. But it's the same problem. Uh, but anyway, that's, uh, anyway, so my earlier life, I mean, I was into originally, you know, anti-submarine warfare, electronic warfare, that kind of thing. I then went over into the intelligence side of the house and the military. And they How got does that the, happen? How do you go over to that? You uh, just wave, wave your hand and say, hey. No, actually, the, uh, the Canadian military, like many militaries, has a program for enlisted guys. I was a former mass corporal, former sergeant, where enlisted guys can go back to university and become officers. So I went to the university training plan, such as at the time, uh, got my bachelor's degree, got my master's degree, and went into the intelligence side of the house. Uh, and the intelligence side likes people with operational backgrounds, especially from the te technical or the tactical so, so, side. So given that you had, had, what was your bachelor's and master's degree in? Uh, history and political science at the bachelor's level, and then at the master's level, it was international relations. And did you know what languages did you know? Uh, English and French, only the only languages I'm capable of working in. So you had this master's degree, and you had, but in kind of useless degrees, and you, you, no offense, and uh, you, you, you had this operational experience. What, why did you know, or how, did you have confidence that you would automatically go back into the intelligence side, that they would want you? Oh yeah, it was, it was a contractual agreement. If we oh. pay for your, if we pay for your master's degree, you're going back to work, son. You know, kind of a thing. So yeah, I was quite confident I would, and I wound up going to all the world's truly exciting places like northern Albania, Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia, Belarus, eastern Russia, those sorts of places. So and, my and again, I I am so sorry. I'm always interrupting, but I'm just fascinated. Why does Canada? send intelligence officers over there. Why don't they just call up the U.S. and say, hey, can you give us a call whenever something's happening and let us know if we should be worried? Okay, Canada's part of the, what we call the Five Eyes community. Uh, actually, okay, let me back up. There's actually a bunch of different communities. There's the Two Eyes community, Canada-U.S. So the world's closest intelligence-sharing relationship probably is Canada-U.S. The next one is Can-U.K.-U.S. That includes the United Kingdom. And then it kind of reaches out to Australia and then New Zealand. So that gives you your Five Eyes community. American intelligence is superior period. However, there are many things Canadians can do that Americans can't. Uh, because if you simply wear an American uniform into certain areas, that sets a whole political, you know, series of political moves in place that people don't want to deal with. But so, can't, can't I be an American intelligence officer with a Canadian passport? Uh, it's probably happened. It's frowned upon. Uh, but here's the thing. I mean, during the war in Bosnia, uh, most of the tactical intelligence on the ground at the human level, human intelligence level, was done by Canadians, Swedes, Norwegians, those kinds of folks. The high-level stuff, which is to say the U-2s and that sort of stuff done by America, because America does technical and technical intelligence better than anyone. But human intelligence on the ground, an American officer in the place probably would have been shot as opposed to getting anything out of it. Yeah, because a big criticism after 9-11 was that we were lacking in human intelligence and, and focusing too much on, on technological. Exactly. Because of the technology advances and because of politicians who don't like risk, 
politicians love technical intelligence because it sees over the wall without having to cross the wall, sort of a thing. Whereas human intelligence, you have to actually cross the wall, go over there and look around, talk to people. So in a case like Bosnia, the human intelligence was much better done by NATO partners such as Norway or Canada or even the Brits to a certain degree. Uh, and the, the technical stuff done better by America. But yeah, post 9-11... It was discovered very suddenly that America had lost a whole lot of its capabilities. One, human intelligence. The other one is the whole issue of torture. A lot of things went wrong after 9-11 in the field of torture because American intelligence had lost its skills uh, during that period between Vietnam and, say, 9-11. What, what, what were their skills? What was America's okay, what, specifically skills? One of the things that came out of the World War II and came out of Vietnam and Korea to a certain degree is that torture is wrong. Um, now, I should be careful what I say here. I'll get myself in trouble. But the reality is... Yourself. No one's... We're only a few people in this yeah, room. Yeah, just a no couple guys listening. in a room talking. How could you possibly get in trouble? So here's the thing about torture. As a professional intelligence officer who's part of a much larger community, the professional intelligence community is against torture. Not because of, shall we say, the moral and ethical issues, although that's a thing, and not because of the legal issues, although we do try and follow, you know, the law to a, to a larger extent, but most of the intelligence community is against torture because it doesn't work. That's you, the problem. Because you're, you're causing so much pain, they'll, get, they'll tell you anything? So the problem is, yeah, if you're in a situation where you're interrogating somebody about their background or their operational experiences or their skills or their knowledge of a certain thing, if you put people under incredible physical pressure, polite word for torture, uh, they will start shaping their message because they know what you want to hear and they'll start shaping the message. And the problem there is at the start of the chain, if you put bad information in at the start of a chain as you're learning and developing something, bad information at the start means you poison the entire chain. Uh, so information gained from torture is usually wrong. The single exception from that, and here we can get into some trouble, but the only time torture can be justified in the sense that it works is the ticking bomb scenario or the kidnapped child scenario. So some kid's been kidnapped, he's been buried in a box somewhere, you know, they're trying to get ransom for the kid and the clock is running out, the kid's going to suffocate. There is a possibility that torturing somebody, if you catch them, may allow you to say, okay, we're going to torture you until you tell us where the kid's buried. But only under those circumstances can torture be said to work. So the whole 9-11 thing, all the torture that followed that was probably a waste of time, a waste of effort. And by the way, most of it was run by non-intelligence people. The people that were hired to run that program were my opinion, sociopaths and completely incompetent and we're not from the intelligence community, and by so, the way. So, so let me, right, most of them were like military as opposed to intelligence or I don't know. Yeah, so, no, they were, I mean, the people the U.S. government hired to do the whole waterboarding and all that thing actually had no background in intelligence, no background in the military. And, and a bunch they were of, just mercenaries, right? Uh, they yeah, were overseas. A bunch of sociologists and psychologists who thought they had better ideas than everybody else. But here's the kind of thing, if you're actually interrogating somebody or investigating them or whatever, um, the old expression, you catch more flies with honey than you do other stuff, that actually is true. You're better to build a relationship with them, understand what they're going, put pressure on them uh, in non-physical ways. Like tell them about their family, tell them about their future, this sort of thing. And you can actually get useful intelligence out of them uh, that way. We so, also have people who are professionals in watching body language and watching how people put sentences together and how the words work. And they can sit there and tell you, yep, 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 no, he's lying there. So, so, so like, let's say someone's a total psychopath. I don't know if these... Al-Qaeda or ISIS leaders are or aren't, you know, maybe some of them are, you know, uh, uh, extreme religious fanatics and they're not quite psychopaths. I don't know if there's a distinction, but if someone's a psychopath and you threaten their family, they're not going to care or they're going to still put in the bad information into the chain. So, so how do you, uh, uh, how would you 
for, first off, is that the case with most of these people that you ha that you were torture that not that America needed to torture or was torturing or whatever? Okay, first thing, um, you're talking about psychopaths, whatever. Most people assume that terrorists suffer from a certain degree of uh, a claim of mental disease or mental defect or however one would describe it, or they're crazy or they're fanatics. And the reality is the most terrifying thing about terrorists is the degree to which they're normal. Um, there is a belief that terrorists are crazy, they're insane, they're drug addicts, uh, mommy used to beat them and daddy didn't love them and their sister was a hooker or something like that. And there's that belief that that's where terrorism comes from. But the reality is if you look at a large group of terrorists in a large group over a period of time, the degree to which they suffer from mental disease or defect is less from the population from which they're drawn. Same goes for the alcohol and drug abuse claim that, oh, you know, they're drug addicts and whatever, da-da-da-da-da. No, the degree to which they suffer from drug and alcohol-related illness is less than the population from which they're drawn. We're also getting this thing right now that, oh, you know, terrorists, it's all, it's mental illness, it's a mental illness problem. We just had a better mental illness problem, you know, the problem would go away. Untrue. Um, most terrorists are terrifyingly normal. So when you actually meet some of these guys, if you sit through a forensic interview, which I've done on a couple of cases, what terrifies you is how incredibly normal they are and how they can walk down a street and nobody sees them because so, they are normal. So Except, it, of course, they have a certain belief system that takes us slightly off track. So if you were to define, like, for, give, give, us, give us some skills that we can use. Like, if you're talking to someone, how can you tell... How would you, A, apply subtle pressure to get them to tell you the truth or to tell you something new? And B, how would you determine if they were lying or telling the truth? Like, what would you do? Okay, just a fun example. It's always it's always good to give examples. So a fun example of torture. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, a fun example where torture wasn't used and it worked or a, a form of pressure was put on somebody. So during the first Gulf War, um, there was a uh, an Iraqi general captured in Kuwait. Uh, when they, you know, the Iraq had gone into Kuwait, captured the place, taken it over where uh, Western forces went in. They managed to grab this one Iraqi general who they knew was important. They knew this guy had insider knowledge that they wanted. So the first thing is like, how do we get this guy? How are we going to talk to him? So they isolated him, stuck him in a room, cut him off from the world entirely, made sure he got no news. And then they created a narrative around him and said, you're going to tell us this, you're going to tell us that, or we're going to be bad to you. And of course he was saying, I'm not telling you anything. And then they said, all right, we're bringing in the specialist. You're going to be tortured. It's going to be hot knives and electricity and all this stuff to try and put fear into him. And then they pulled a funny trick on him. Uh, just as they're lighting him up to torture him, another guy walks in and says, well, hey, let's have a coffee. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do here for the next hour. Uh, we got to get rid of you. We're going to send you back home. But uh, meanwhile, we're here. Let's talk for a while. And the guy's like, what do you mean? What's going on? They said, oh, didn't you hear? Uh, your hometown has been captured in Iraq. We've invaded. The place has been overrun. Uh, ba Basra has been destroyed. We've taken it over. And your value to us now is, well, it's kind of essentially zero. We don't know what to do with you now. So we're just going to send you to a prisoner war camp. And the trick was Bazar had not been overrun. He didn't know this, but he believed it. And in his heart, he believed it. So then they were able to say, uh, your family's in Bazar, aren't they? And it's like, yeah, oh, geez, we don't know what happened to your family. Uh, maybe we can find out. We'll, we'll talk and see what, oh yeah, I'd like to find out what happened to my family. Guess what? This guy now believes the knowledge he had is useless and he started talking. So uh -huh. people said, oh, you could have tortured him. It's like, no, no, put the guy in a different position, let him talk. And guess what? The guy was an absolute landslide of intelligence. So, so, so how long would you isolate him? Uh, it depends on circumstances, depends on everything else. But the art of interrogation uh, is an art unto itself. And the U.S. military actually led the world in this stuff post-Vietnam because they'd realized the whole torture stuff and chucking people out of helicopters wasn't really effective. So, uh, so, so that's when you talk about 9-11, people said America had lost its human intelligence capability. It has also lost 
to a larger degree, its interrogation capability, which was based on stress and pressure rather than torture. So, so, so this, so isolation, maybe isolate like in solitary confinement and prison enough that their, their brain starts playing tricks on them or where they lose that's, sense that's of their identity. That's kind of a whole other thing. I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you want to punish somebody by putting them in isolation, it'll eventually destroy their brain, but that's not the purpose here. The purpose is to cut them off from the world so they don't know what's going on. So and then you like shape a, a narrative for them. It might just be a few days. Hours, days, sort of a thing, yeah. But I mean, en enough, though, that you could say, hey, we overran Bassar. So if, if it was an hour, you could say, no, I, it's an hour ago it, it yeah, existed. Yeah, that, that wouldn't have worked. So, but, I mean, they created an narrative around that guy where he genuinely thought the city of Bassar had been destroyed and he was no longer useful. So I'm, I'm trying to think, like, if I'm, let's say, I'm just trying to put myself in that situation. If I was captured by terrorists, isolated, threatened with torture, by the way, I would immediately say, I'll just tell you everything. But if they kept threatening... And, and then they, you know, got me already, strapped me down. And then the good cop walks in and says, ah, we don't need you anymore. Um, New York city was overrun. You're, you, but we don't, it's in ruins, flames, our army's all over it, but we, we don't know what's happened to your family. Would you like us to find out? I would say, yeah. And then they say, listen, we might as well just talk a little bit. Like, what were you doing in, uh, over here from, from the army. I'm trying to figure out what I would say. I, I guess it's hard to know though, unless you're in that situation. Yeah. You never know what you're going to do until you're actually put in a highly my, stressful situation. My first instinct was this is probably good cop, bad cop. And I might've, they just said, I'm going to go. So I'll probably just sh shut up till I go. Do you know why the good cop, bad thing, bad cop thing exists? No. Cause it works. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. Yeah, it works. You put person in a stressful situation and say, this guy over here is the angry dog and he's straining at the leash and we think the leash is going to hold, but we're not sure. Whereas this guy over here is going to buy a coffee and talk to you. Which way are you going? Uh, good cop, bad cop works because it works. But, that, uh, but, but I guess so you have to be in a high stress situation because rationally you can still say this is a game that's happening and here's how I'm, how I'm going to play it. You have to put that person in a situation where they think there is a win-loss capability for them. And that involves stress, isolation, whatever, yeah. So so the tactics of Islamic terrorists of, of doing these, you know, beheadings, that might be a way to set the stage for later interrogations against Americans because Americans can see, hey, this is a real possibility that I could get beheaded. There is kind of a, you know, a battlefield imperative. If you know at the end of the day you're going to get captured by a guy who's going to torture you and cut your head off, you might fight a little harder to avoid those kinds of folks or whatever. But the actual purpose of terrorism, the purpose of terrorism is to terrify. It is to instill fear in a targeted population. So when you look at ISIS with the whole putting the pilot in the cage and setting him on fire, uh, lining up the Coptic Christians on the beach and cutting off their heads one by one, chopping the heads off journalists and that sorts of stuff, the purpose of that is to put terror into a targeted population, in this case, the West. Uh, and arguably, it works. 9-11 uh, worked. I mean, that's the sad thing. I mean, question has to be asked. Here we are 18 years after 9-11, 34 years after the Air India disaster, 20-some years after the 93 World Trade Center attack. How are we doing in the whole counterterrorism thing? And the answer is we're not doing all that well. We're getting much better at the tactical level, but we're losing at the strategic level. So I'm going to ask you about that, how we're losing. But what I am curious about is in the, let's call it the 10, 15 years after 9-11, the rumor always was that... Uh, we were behind, I say we, but the, the, the government was behind the scenes stopping lots of sleeper cells, potential terrorist attacks, other potential 9-11s that we were all over and we were stopping dozens or hundreds of these. Is that true, false, zero, 100? What, what, what was the truth? There was a lot of, uh, there's some truth in it. There have been a number of major terrorist attacks interrupted by a variety of countries, uh, since then. 
The numbers, however, I think tend to get greatly exaggerated. The whole sleeper cell thing was greatly exaggerated. The FBI at some point, I think, said, you know, there's a sleeper cell in at least one in every American state, uh, including, you know, the, the two non-contiguous states. And that was actually nonsense. What actually came out of that eventually was that al-Qaeda did not have a sleeper agent program. Uh, they had no theory behind it. They had no money behind it, no training behind it. And they never actually deployed sleeper agents in the Soviet sense of the term. Because the Soviets used to actually have sleeper cells or sleep, people in sleeper positions where they could use at a later time. Al-Qaeda never actually had that in North America, Europe. It just wasn't part of their program. My, my yeah. assumption was they had recruits rather than sleeper cells. Yeah, there were people, however... Uh, you know, however, comma, pause for effect sort of a thing. There were people, however, were sympathetic to the cause who, if you put out a message saying, hi, this is Al-Qaeda here, we need you there in America, some guy to jump up and go stab somebody or blow something up. There were those people who would respond to that kind of message, what loosely gets called lone wolf terrorism, which is a horrible term, it's whatever. But... Kind of like that shoe guy, the, the shoe terrorist. Uh, yeah, Richard Reed, the, the shoe bomber, those kinds of guys. Uh, s single people operating as, a, as an individual in a cell can be quite dangerous, and I think that's what that was mostly a reference to. A lot of those people have been picked off and jailed, but a lot of it was entrapment as well, so. So, so I want, I want to get back to what you were doing. So you, you became an intelligence officer. Uh, uh, what did that involve? You were, you were deployed to, uh, Bosnia, Croatia, Albania. What, what were you doing there? Were you, you know, you kind of stand out in a crowd. Yeah. Do, do a lot of different things. Uh, in this particular case, I was working for the United Nations headquarters in Zagreb, which is where I was based out of. Uh, my boss was a Marine Corps colonel, a U.S. Marine Corps colonel, who was essentially the G2. He was head of intelligence for the entire Yugoslav mission, effectively. Uh, and my job was to work for him, and I would do stuff, we would do stuff like targeting. In other words, uh, when NATO was going to do airstrikes, which they eventually did, or if we're going to do uh, counter-battery strikes with heavy artillery and stuff like that, the question is, what are you actually shooting at? And are you going to shoot at something that's actually useful to hit? So how do you compose a list of targets which are worth going after? Uh, so that was one of our missions. Another mission was always the, the classic mission of force protection. In other words, you have your people deployed downrange. You yourself go downrange. It would be nice to know you're not going to get killed while this is happening. And you try and protect your own forces and your allies from not being killed. So the, the mission called force protection is to identify who may come after you, where they're going to come after you, what they're going to come after you with, and how do you preempt those kinds of attacks. I, I don't think I understand. So you're, you're, you're in Bosnia and you're looking at the, the, the part one of what you said is you're looking for uh, potential targets, like for instance, what seems like innocuous office, office buildings or hospitals that actually house military personnel or weapons or whatever. Yep. And the part two of that, which I guess is related, is you're also protecting the other people like you who are doing similar things against people who are like you on the other side. What what does that mean? How, oh, how protect, does that happen? Protecting our own folks. So, for instance, I'm a Canadian, so, you know, your first job is to protect the two Canadian battalions were there. But we also work with the Swedes and Norwegians, whatever, so your job is to protect them as well because they're part of the United Nations force. So force protection is protecting your own folks, folks from enemy attacks. So, how do you do that? Uh basic, uh, some of it's just basic military intelligence. Who's deployed, who's, you know, on the other side in terms of like a Serbian outfit or a Croatian outfit or a Bosnian Muslim outfit. Who's their commanding officer? What is his intentions? What are his capabilities? Why is he moving forces down a certain road? Why are they laying minefields in a certain area and try and say, okay, this is defensive work on their part. They're not actually a threat. Or you're saying, okay, they're actually building in order for an offense to occur. In which case you go to the commander and say, hey, the, uh, the 2nd Swedish Battalion deployed in that area is prone to being attacked in the next three to five days. You might want to tell them and start thinking about that. So so, so let me just break this down. And I, I just, I'm trying to figure it out exactly. So you're seeing them laying mines from 
because you're there or because you're seeing satellite photographs? Uh, we sometimes have people on the ground. We use a lot of people. So, for instance, aid workers, uh, guys that drive trucks up and down the same road every day. You'll talk to them and they say, hey, I drove down that road to Gorny Vakouf 10 times in the last two weeks. But yesterday I saw a formation of tanks on high ground. And you go, oh. Okay, that's a change. We also have access to satellite imagery. So satellite imagery will sometimes record the movement of heavy forces, and, that and, sort of and stuff. And given your knowledge of all the people, like you you will know and you'll recognize by face all the generals in the Serbian armed forces. You'll know which guys are more defensive, which guys are more offensive, what they're, and so you can yeah. start to make informed guesses. When you see General Miladic doing a field tour of a unit, that's like an indicator and a warning that something's about to go wrong because he's out there backing up the troops saying, let's go, let's go, kind would of you, a thing. Would you ever have kind of the spy movie uh, cliche of like a sort of a, a double agent in the middle of their army and you would kind of manage them. What's it called when you manage a, a spy? Uh, well, another thing called source development, which is another thing. Uh, it was kind of like my third main area of occupation over there is source development. Who is out there you can talk to that knows what's going on? Because uh, satellite imagery is great to a point. Uh, personal observation of what's going on is important to a point. So you start to understand capabilities through those sorts of things. But the other question is intention. So that force may have the capability to attack. The question is, do they have the intention to attack? And more often than not, your best source for intentions is a human source, someone that's actually there. They know what's going on. They talk to the commander or they're in the area. So, yeah, we used to do a lot of source development, looking for people who were disgruntled, looking for people who were refugees from an area that had just been driven out of a combat area. So as refugees are driven out, the next day you want to talk to those guys because they've got good firsthand knowledge. So, uh, so but, but in terms of, like, let's say source development of someone who is disgruntled, how would you know they're disgruntled? How would you approach them? Like, how would you specifically do it? And, and I know there's a lot of... We want to get to the current day and age and, and what's happening right now. I'm very interested in that, but I'm also still trying to understand the, the skills you developed over the decades and, and you know, what, what happened. Okay, so by example, if you're looking, uh, okay, Bosnia is a fascinating example because people thought of the war as between the Serbs, the Croats, and the Muslims. The reality is if you'd looked at one of our maps in 1992, 1994, it showed 18 or 19 or 20 different factions in Bosnia. Like, if you got three groups, how can you have 18 factions? Well, some of the Serbs didn't like the Serbs, some of the Croats didn't like the other Croats, some of the Muslims didn't like the other Muslims, so they're actually fighting each other as well. The other thing that was fascinating about that area was that peace and harmony had actually broken out in Bosnia in the 70s and 80s to a point where Serbs were marrying Croats, Croats were marrying Muslims, Muslims were marrying Slovenians or whatever. So the uh, uh, Donald Trump was marrying Slovenians. There, yes, there was. You know, there we go. Um, so... What the opportunity that gives you is, here's the Serb guy, he marries the Croat girl, they have a couple of kids in 1985 or something, and then the shooting war starts in 91, 92. Whose side are they on? They are incredibly vulnerable because the Croatian side's going to kill them or the Serbian side's going to kill them or whatever if they don't declare one way or the other. So you look for people who say have a mixed marriage or a mixed background and you realize that person there is in trouble because they're going to have to move. They're going to have to decide which side they're on and who they're going to throw their lot in with. So there's someone who's vulnerable, who's got a problem, who needs help. Uh, and there's someone you might want to go talk to. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, 
and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldicher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. 
The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use him from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, so let's fast forward to what's going on now and uh, what is going on now. Like, if you if you read different reports, it seems like ICE. On the one hand, they say ISIS is is over, and the next thing we know is the head of ISIS was just killed. So there was a head of ISIS. Like, what's and then and then the other thing I keep hearing about is cyber warfare, which is basically every country is attacking every other country and like their electronic grid, their banks, you know, bot armies and all their corporations. And it's a un- that's a universal global phenomenon. So where am I wrong? Where am I? Okay, so two entirely separate questions. The first one, the terrorism one. Let's look at that. Uh, ISIS is sort of like the example everybody looks at. So there's ISIS. That's one thing. And then there was 9-11, and there was the 93 World Trade Center attack. There was the attack on the USS Cole. There was the attack on the British subway system. There was the Paris Charlie Hebdo killings. There was the Berlin Christmas market attack. There was the Nice attack. There was the attack in Ottawa. And the list goes on and so, on. So I assume so people all ask, those were basically al-Qaeda. So, so – uh, no, but okay, let's go. It's a fair question. People. So the question is, what the hell is going on? Why, why do the bombs keep going off? And everybody tells us it's got nothing to do with Islam, but yet everybody doing it seems to be doing it in the name of Islam. So here's what's going on. There is a global struggle for the soul of Islam. Uh, think of it kind of as the Protestant, River, uh, Protestant Reformation, but a bit different. So Islam in the 1880s up to about 1928, there was this huge conversation with this in Islam that said, look, we used to be great. We used to have empires. We had medicine. We had health. We had water. We had science. We had everything. We were running massive amounts of territory and doing a good job of it. So a lot of Muslims started to ask the question in the 1880s, 1890s and saying, where the hell are we now? We control nothing. We have nothing. Every time we look up, we see a colonial ruler telling us what we have to do. And interesting enough, a number of Muslims, guys like Al Afghani and Hassan al-Banna said, look, here's the thing. When we were strong in the faith, we were strong in the ground. When we became weak in the faith, we became weak and we got overrun. And the fault is not the fault of the British or the French or the Germans or whatever. It's our own fault for being weak. If you're weak, people run you over. That's what happens. So they said, we need to go back to the strength. So to make a very long story short, a guy by the name of Hassan al-Banna founded the Muslim Brotherhood and he said, we have to be strong again. We have to go back to the faith. And then he did something really bizarre. And this is where it all starts. He said, Islam has to be strong, not as a religion, but as a political system. It has to be an entire 
all-encompassing system. So the, uh, the uh, motto they kind of use for that is Islam is the solution. So Islam to the Muslim Brotherhood, to Al-Qaeda, to Boko Haram, to uh, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, to Lashkari Toiba, it is at a total belief system. It encompasses the economy, it encompasses education, it encompasses how your job works, it encompasses everything in your life. Islam becomes the solution. And they also believe Islam has the nature to dominate not to be dominated. Now, is this so, popular? Is this Muslim Brotherhood and its adherents is it populated by both Sunni and Shiite and the other forms of Islam, or is it mostly Sunni? Most of the Muslim uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is almost exclusively Sunni, uh, with a few other folks kind of thrown around the edge. Uh, if you want to look at the Shia side, that's actually the Iranian government. It is a theocratic dictatorship driven by an Islamist ideology that says Islam is a total political solution, albeit from a Shia point of view rather than Sunni point of view. The joy of Hassan al-Banna was that his appeal caught on and he was able to push this appeal. So right now, if you go around the world, my own work says shows that there are about 85 countries in the world that have a permanent, permanent well-funded, well-organized Muslim Brotherhood presence, which is pushing the agenda of political Islam. Now, one of the, the strange things about this, people tend to forget, you know, they look at 9-11, they look at London, they look at Paris. What they forget is most of the people dying in this are actually Muslims. And this is like Pakistan. It's like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. Uh, this is countries where Muslims are killing each other over this determination of where is the faith going. So you've got one gaggle of Muslims who say, look, Islam is a faith, it's a religion. It needs to be modernized, humanized, and driven into the future. But you've got the other crowd, which is Muslim Brotherhood, Hizbut Tahrir, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, as we've talked about. They want to turn this into a political system and drive it back to its past glory. And they actually make the argument that Islam was at its most perfect in the first three generations after the Prophet. And, and even though there's evidence that um, economic development is what ultimately you know causes countries to... Uh, have less infant mortality, higher literacy, uh, greater wealth, uh, more less corrupt political systems. There's all sorts of evidence, you know, particularly we see the rise in countries in Africa, even South America and so on. They don't see that data. They're not data-driven. No, they, they, yeah, they wouldn't be data-driven in that sense of the thing. They would actually make an argument to you saying, no, 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 if you lived in what we would now call Saudi Arabia in the year 650 or 700, or if you lived in Spain in the year 1000, you would have been living a much better life then than you would be now, and, sort and of an it, argument. And I also want to understand, in terms of, so some people are born into a system, and that's just simply the system they believe because they were born into it. But how many people are like, real, like, like are in the, what percentage of Islam is, Muslim Brotherhood and passionate about it and knowledgeable and 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 capable of being you know real uh, I don't know how to describe it real Muslim brothers as opposed true, to true believers sort of a question yeah. yeah so yeah fascinating question it depends on what question you ask and where you ask it so do you believe that Sharia law should be above the Constitution that's one question you can ask and if you ask that question in places like Belgium France the United Kingdom Canada and America you get a rather disturbing number of large Muslims who believe that Sharia law should supersede the Constitution so, so and that's like 20 to 40 percent range but there's a nuance in that question too which is should Sharia law apply to just me in which case I'll I'll do it or should Sharia law apply to the non Muslim. Okay, so there's that's a different question is should Islam dominate all others? As Hassan al Banna said, the nature of Islam is to dominate. But that but that's your question too. Uh, if if, if so it's above that, the British constitution, you're saying it should dominate others. Yes, exactly. That's mm -hmm. the issue. So that number actually drops. There are a number of Muslims who say we're gonna live in our own little community, we'll let you guys do a thing. So same as but, Judaism. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. So the difference there with many other faiths is we're going to do our thing. You do your thing. We'll kind of do our thing over here. You do your thing over there and we'll kind of meet in the middle and it's fine. Uh, and you can actually run societies based on multiple faiths as long as they agree to stay off each other's turf to the most part. But we all agree that the, the constitution is the final arbitrator. In other words, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God. Is that kind of, I think that's actually a Protestant thing, but whatever. Um, so that's what we've kind of agreed to work on our societies that Caesar will control this. God will control that, and we've all agreed to play by the rules. But now you get this other group come in and says, no, man-made law is inferior, God's made law is superior, Sharia will dominate. So your more ISIS kind of crowd, your Hizbut-Tahrir crowd, your Al-Qaeda crowd, and your hardcore Muslim Brotherhood crowd say, you either must submit, i.e. join uh, Islam and become a part of the program, or you're going to pay the tax and you will be under our domination. So what percentage of Islam, because I, I don't want to say this is about Islam, every religion has had its point, and and uh, you've written and talked about this argument for decades. But, but it, it seems like this extreme form of Islam is still a small percentage of Islam. It just happens to be that they're the ones who cause all this pain and anguish and death and terror and so on. Yeah, unfortunately, when you start asking questions like should Sharia law dominate, you wind up in the 20, 30, 40 percent range in a lot of cases, depending on the demographic, but what age group, whatever. Uh, well, if you're in Pakistan, it's close to 100%. Uh, if you're into Southeast Asia in general, you find number 60, 70, 80%. Uh, it's absolutely terrifying. What about here in the U.S.? Uh, here in the U.S., in Canada, and throughout Europe, like Western Europe, the G20 countries, if you want that kind of thing, the numbers tend to run from 20 to 40%, depending on what kind of question you really? ask. So 20 to 30% will say Sharia law should... Should for other for for other non-Muslims yeah. should over, be more important than the Constitution, and particularly when you go into second and third generation, the younger folks tend to have a more extremist, radical point of view than their grandparents do. So if you if you cut it by age, uh, first generation folks that came over from Pakistan or Indonesia or Malaysia or whatever, they tend to have a much softer view. But by the time you get to second or third generation, that view actually becomes harder rather than softer. So so okay. So what's what's the lay of the land right now? And what, what are you most worried about? The lay of the land right now, I think the greatest single problem we have in, in the West, in the G20 countries, the Anglo-American states, whatever you want to call it, uh, is that we are incapable of having intelligent discussions on major problems. So, for instance, terrorism, we, we've spent billions on counterterrorism. Uh, we've employed tens of thousands of people. We've killed God knows how many folks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not actually getting anywhere. One of the reasons is terrorism itself is a tactic. It is a tactic used to serve a strategy. That strategy has been developed by an ideology. That ideology has its own goals. But the guy with the bomb or the gun is actually the frontline soldier. He's the private. He's the corporal, whatever. So what we're doing is we're getting much more effective at hunting the guy with the bomb or the gun but we're not getting after the ideologues. We're not getting after the money guys. We're not getting after the organizers. And not only are we not doing it, you're not even allowed to talk about it. So if you say a question like, is Ilan Omar, your Congress uh, person there from Minnesota, does she represent political Islam? Oh, you're a racist for asking that question. That's an Islamophobic question. Whereas it's no, she is very much advocating on behalf of extremist Islam and she's probably mostly funded by foreign, uh, by foreign influences. So, so if you were to ask so, her that, what would she say? 
I think she would probably, A, start by calling you a racist and whatever, and then she would go, no, no, I'm just representing a faith and whatever. But if you actually look at who she raises money for, so she complains that, oh, I've been accused of being a terrorist, to I, which I would say, well, quit doing fundraising for terrorist groups, and that complaint will probably go away. So Care USA, the Council of American Islamic Relations, is a listed terrorist group in the Middle East. As soon as she was elected, boom, she goes out and does uh, fundraising for them. Care USA is founded by a bunch of people from Hamas, and it's there to push a hardcore political Islamist agenda. How does she uh, justify then support? I'm not, I'm not saying one thing or the other on her, but, but it's confusing when she's then, uh, supports, uh, Bernie Sanders for president, for instance. I, oh, think, the red, I think she's okay, supporting so Bernie Sanders for president. Actually, what, 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 what we generally call the Red-Green Alliance. Uh, Bernie Saunders, last time around when he was running, he was kind of like a cranky old guy socialist, but he was kind of fun to listen to and he was interesting. And not all of his ideas were sort of seen as crazy. This time around, uh, he is running a much harder socialist agenda. And there is a natural attraction between the red and the green, between the left and the hardcore Islamists. And neither one of them believe really in a representative democracy. Neither one of them really believe in human rights. Both of them are strongly collectivists. They believe that there is one set of rules we all must follow and individuality is not a thing they put a high value on. So when they talk to each other, at first you would think, why would Bernie, uh, a very strong socialist, hard left leaning kind of guy, why would he even be talking to a, a brown woman from Africa who is an Islamist? And the answer is they got a lot in common. Uh, they truly do. And we see this red-green well, alliance. Well, when you put it that way, though, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like there's no reason not to be talking to a brown woman Islamist at first glance. There's the, then it does sound racist, actually. Well, it's not that he should or shouldn't <laughs> talk to her, but why would, why would a socialist from America find common ground uh, with an Islamist from Africa? And the answer is it's ideology. They have a very common ideology. So if you look at, for instance, how the Ayatollah Khomeini first got into power in 1979 in Iran, a good chunk of his support that put him over the top and physically put him into power and destroyed the opposition were the Iranian intellectual lefties. Uh, they opposed the Shah, they opposed America, they're strongly socialist, they got behind the, uh, the Homanius, they got behind the Ayatollah and pushed him into power. <laughs> Anybody remember what happens next? Well, the Ayatollah is in power for about a year and then he turned around and killed 30,000 of them, literally killed 30,000 of the lefties to get rid of them all. Uh, and this, of course, is one of the sort of lessons that the, the intellectual left refuses to sort of learn is if you get into bed with the Islamists, if you get into bed with political Islam, uh, at the end of the day, you're going to get hurt. This, this is a huge issue, by the way, is people always say, well, you're anti-Muslim. It's like, no, I'm not. I mean, some of my best sources are Muslim. My co-authors are Muslims. I go on their programs with them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I am strongly anti-Islamist. In other words, those Muslims who believe in political Islam, which thinks it has the right to dominate us, I'm very much against those guys. So, so like taking it a step back politically, it's not like you're worried about a foreign organization that is going to do another bombing of a, a huge building, you're a little bit more worried about this subtle thing, which is that uh, there's political creep happening, that because of the polarization of the parties these days, the extreme left is moving towards the same meta ideology of a, a, a political Islamist, and that's a danger that we're not quite responding to. Yeah, and at the same time, 
we are no longer even allowed to talk about Western values or what, what is a Judeo-Christian value? What is a Western value? What is an American value? What is a Canadian value? As soon as you start to say, well, you know, should we defend our country's own values? Should we have a value-based system or whatever? Oh my God, you're some sort of racist, uh, transphobic, Islamophobic, something, something, whatever the word is for that week, that's what you're representing. And it's like, how come we can't discuss what actually made America the country that everybody in the world wants to move to. Canada is the next country. Everybody in the world wants to move to Canada. Well, if everybody wants to move Canada and leave Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, what makes us different from them? Uh, is it just wealth? Is it economy? How did we get there? And as soon as you want to talk about those things, oh my God, it has to be shut down immediately. So this whole business of virtue signaling, this whole business of political correctness, which at the end of the day is a, is a product of postmodernism, it is designed to silence any opposition to sort of this red-green sort of alliance that we're seeing develop. And I think uh, one of the reasons I started my uh, my podcast and I got going on the Quiggin Report was this whole business of, if we're going to talk about intelligence or national security or terrorism or border control, whatever, we have to be able to talk about it openly, clearly. We have to be able to put our ideas forth and have them challenged and have them accepted or not. Right, because it, 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 it seems like if you look at the political landscape right now, you take someone like Joe Biden, okay, who... I don't even know where he stands on most of the issues, but let's just say historically his career, you could look at it and you could say, okay, this guy's a Democrat, he's a liberal, he's voted the liberal side on almost every issue in the past 30 years. He's a classic U.S. Uh, elected official who, who takes the liberal stance on, on most issues. And yet he is almost considered like a right-wing fascist by the extreme left. Like yes, I mean, the, the discussion... You can't be left of center anymore People used to be proud. Oh, I'm left of center. On the web. Is that Alexa or something? <laughs> they're they're listening to us. Yes, Tom. It's I can't say anything. I just said something about Joe Biden. Now I'm gonna the CIA is gonna contact me. So he used to be like a classic Democrat for decades, and no no one would argue that. And he takes these straight, solid liberal position. Other Republicans, like let's just say, make up a senator, Lindsey Graham, might take the straight Republican side. This used to be the debate in America, and there's some debate whether they were actually the same side or not. But now, but that's the debate, is that the extreme left says they're all the same, and the extreme left is the only one making change. And the change is extreme. Yeah, we've gotten to a position where the, if you call it the progressive left, if you call it the Frankfurt School, whatever you want to call it, they have so thoroughly dominated the discussion now that the discussion is their view is correct, and everyone else must be destroyed. It's not like old classic uh, old classic liberals used to recognize they had a point of view and they had a belief system, but they recognized other people had different belief systems and they had to accommodate that, they had to work with it, they had to do buy-offs, trade-offs, compromise, whatever. Now, the very concept of compromise which is what drove our societies ahead so well for so long. This business of integration, the ability to work together in a compromising situation, but still produce something good. The whole idea of compromise now has become a dirty word. Do you think so that's you why must maintain intellectual purity and destroy the other. So, so like, what's what's Nancy Pelosi's agenda now uh, uh, that she's got to deal with this? You know, she's essentially the the head of the Democratic Party at the moment. She has to deal with this left wing faction that might be in the minority, but is so forceful and has so many, um, the, the people who believe in them, who, who vote for them are so passionate about it. It's kind of, oh, the passions are, are overwhelming the sort of non, the non-passionate majority of supporters for people like Pelosi and Biden. So how does she deal with it? 
Okay, let me just, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. I said I had a degree in political science and history, and you said, you know, sorry to hear that. Back when political science. <laughs> I was science, just kidding. I'm sorry about that. No, no, back, no, I You're would agree today. <laughs> don't, don't get a degree in political science today. Most of it's crap. But back in the old days when I took this sort of stuff, and political science still had a rigor, and I was actually taught at a university that used to be run by Jesuits, but we won't get into that. Um, one of the things that we were taught, and it makes a perfect amount of sense, is to say, look, uh, I've had people say, why are you worried about Muslims? Call me when they make up 50% plus one of the society and then we'll talk about it. And it's like, no, the actual answer is a small group of people, two to 3%, if they have a coherent message, they're well-funded and they're focused, they can literally change the absolute course of your society. So the two classic examples, and I always fall back in these two, are the Soviet Union, the creation of the Soviet Union in 1917. It's always put forth to us as a mass populist revolt and the peasants arose, whatever. Load of crap. It was run by the middle class, the upper middle class. Maybe 2% of the people in Russia at the time were politically active with the what we would now call the Communist Party. And of those, most of them were probably, you know, just carrying along. They weren't really all that heavily into it. So one or 2% of the population was able to ch totally change the nature of that state. Same goes for Nazi Germany. Uh, the number of people who joined the Nazi party never really got past 3%, and a good chunk of those joined just because, you know, you got to get a job, you got to belong to the party kind of a thing. But a very hardcore percentage of one or 2% or of a population can change the total direction of a state. So... People say, well, you know, that'll never happen in Canada, can't happen in America. But what here's does the thing. What does happen, though? What did happen in uh, so Soviet Russia? Like, 1% or 2% are in the Communist Party, and then suddenly 100% is in the Communist Party. Like, what happened? Well, that 1% or 2% of the state was able to change it from a sort of an aristocratic, autocratic, czarist uh, state to a communist uh, organization. You can argue one is better, whatever, it doesn't matter. But 1% or 2% of the people made the change. Same thing in Nazi Germany. 1% or 2% or 3% of the people made the make, change. How do they make the changes? Is okay, it because so they're a swing vote or is it because of military? One, one, of the things they all, one of the things you also need is not just a dedicated 1% or 2 3% that are willing to dominate the intellectual discussions. You also need a pivot point. You need an invasion. You need an economic upset or whatever. So the Soviet Union probably never would have come about if it hadn't been for World War I. Uh, but so right now, let's say in America, there are people who are seriously, intelligent people in America are talking about the possibility of civil strife, actual violence in the street. Other people are talking about civil war. I'm not really sure we're that far down that path, but I do worry about civil strife in both Canada and America, i.e. violence in the street, Antifa, that kind of thing. Um, if we get another major economic downturn, we won't get into this now, but there's enough out there to say we are in trouble. Long-term low interest rates, quantitative easing. Uh, so you're saying if we have another 2008, whereas in 2008, 2009, the result was a, a, a feudal protest to Occupy Wall Street, you're saying the next Occupy Wall Street could... Be, be violent or be... Yeah, we're already seeing, I mean, this is allegedly the good times right now in Canada and America. We're already seeing Antifa-type organizations committing gross acts of violence in the street and the police forces are doing very little to counteract them. Uh, moving out there on the, on the periphery, which you don't see all that much, is a reactionary force is growing. Reactionary terrorism, reactionary extremism, and whatever you want to call it, right-wing extremism, neo-Nazis, whatever, those folks are out there in their building. They lack a charismatic leader, they lack organization, they lack skill, they lack a, an effective message. But if we get another sharp economic downturn, and I think this is a subject for another day, but the next economic downturn is going to be much worse than the last one. If we get ourselves into a situation like that, the potential for violence in the streets, I would argue, is is quite high. I, I agree with you. And I, I also agree, by the way, that um, income inequality, regardless of the reasons for it, the income inequality is is widening. 
and whether again i debate whether or not it should matter but it's it's a problem politically and people point to it so so that makes it a problem that in itself is what's creating a lot of this polarization right now you look at yeah. the whole platform of these uh, uh democrats like bernie sanders all they point to is income inequality without pointing to actually any of the positives that are happening in the country. Yeah. And their solution apparently is free stuff, free stuff for everybody, which is great, but how are they going to pay for it? So here's a quick thing from 2008 to, to today, 2019, uh, everybody says, oh, the stock market is up. You know, the prices are twice what they were, whatever, la, 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 that's all great. That's benefiting a very narrow group of people, many of whom live here in New York. If you look at the middle class, the lower middle class and the poor, they have been either stagnant since the 1980s and they've gone downhill since 2008, or especially with the poor class, they've gone downhill continuously since the 1980s and they've taken a particular downturn since 2008. All this wealth generation, all this wealth creation that we've supposedly been engaged in in the last 10 years with quantitative easing and all the changes in trade and everything else have benefited a very narrow section of the population at the top. Everybody else has suffered worse than that. They're in much more debt than they used to be. So, And I I might agree. I'm just, uh, I'm asking you, I'll, I'll throw different things at you like, uh, do, do you believe in any kind of trickle down? Like there is a very low unemployment rate or do you believe that we're seeing the low unemployment rate because people are leaving the workforce and not reporting and so the numbers are inaccurate? Yeah, exactly. You've got all these different unemployment rates, U3, U6 and whatever. And people always point at the U3 unemployment rate. It's, I don't know what it is right now, 4.5% or 6% or whatever. Everybody goes, oh, look, unemployment 3, is so low. 3.5%. Is it right now? Okay, so everybody goes, oh, look at that. Unemployment is so low. Well, but the reality U6, is- U6, like the biggest one is yeah, still very low. The reality is even that summer is probably around 9%. But a whole bunch of people, once they drop out of the workforce, once they're fired or they lose their job, they're, they're monitored for like another year. They become part of U3, U6 or whatever. But after they're out of the workforce for a while, they actually literally fall off the table. They're no longer even considered. So if you look at actual unemployment in America, same thing in Canada, by the way, we're no different. Those numbers are actually increasingly quite startlingly. And then you get the other question of underemployment. So you get this great job statistic. Oh, the government created 100,000 jobs last month or something like that. Well, some kid living in his parents' basement with a master's degree in gender analysis, washroom something, something, uh, has got a $50,000 student loan. So he finally decides I better get going. So he gets a job at Starbucks, 16 hours a week, working four shifts or something like that. That counts as a job. But this kid is not a bad kid. So he actually says, well, I'm going to go work at uh, some other place in a retail store. I'm going to work there 10 hours a week. Oh, now we've created two jobs. And reality is you haven't even created one job yet. And by the way, it's all part-time, no benefits, no stability, no nothing. So the, the employment figures have been, I don't know if we should use the word doctored or not, but they've been massaged to make things look a lot better than they are. Workforce participation is dropping rapidly. Well, the number, the percentage of Americans actually involved in the workforce is dropping, not rising. And here's another stunning one for you. Same thing in Canada. The percentage of people who are 55 and over who are remaining in the workforce or going back into the workforce is increasing dramatically to a point where that actually outweighs the other end, which is the 18 to 25 crowd. So more people 55 and over are staying in the workforce or going back into it than the 18 to 25 crowd getting into it. Uh, there's a I'm bunch of reasons for that. having an anxiety attack right now. Like, what's, lay, lay it out. What's going to happen? Uh, okay, for, for our history degrees and political science degrees we don't like, Back when we used I'm to teach sorry. this stuff, back when we used to teach this stuff, they talk about a system inversion. If you get, and it's like physics, if you get too much weight at the top and not enough weight at the bottom, a system has a tendency to roll. Uh, the problem is not capitalism per se. I mean, Bernie, Bernie Saunders' solution is, oh, we have inequality, what we need is socialism. And it's like, great, we have inequality, so let's all drink poison. And I say, great, you know, 
If you want to kill yourself and be Venezuela, go ahead, do it. But what we actually have is a problem with crony capitalism. We have had politicians who, for since roughly the late 1980s, have continuously rewritten the laws to benefit a very narrow class. The narrow class is telling the politicians how to write the tax laws, how to write this stuff. And at a certain point, the people have to say, no, 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 we need to restart rewriting some of the tax laws, some of the investment laws to benefit everybody, not just a very narrow class at the top. How do you rewrite them? Uh, the problem is at the end of the day, it's the politicians. If they're not forced into doing this by pressure from the population, they won't do it. No, but what, what do you need to rewrite? What, do, what would you, what, what's like a sample law that... Uh, Here, one of the craziest things ever. So you're an American company. You decide you're going to close your factory in America and move it to China and then start importing the goods. You get a tax break for doing that. Why is that? Because they told the politicians to write the laws that way. So you get a tax break for shutting down your factory and then you get a tax break for importing the stuff. And it's like, this is like an environmental thing or no, it was just a straightforward uh, business accounting, generally approved accounting position. Usually behind every law, there's some way to argue it. Like that seems like there's no way to argue that. So I'm just curious, what's, what's the other side of that argument? Well, the argument would be, you know, don't give people tax benefits for putting Americans out of work. Uh, yeah, but, but that's why I don't understand. Like, how do they argue that law? Let's put, let's fire people and get a tax break for it. Who argue? How, how do they argue that law? Is what I meant. If <laughs> oh boy, law, at the end of the day, it's lobbying. Uh, most laws get written. Why? Because somebody went to a congressman or a senator or a group of them and said, "Oh no, you need to change the tax code. You need to change banking laws. You need to change whatever to benefit us." You put enough money into any lobby group, enough lobbyists can go out and get enough congressmen to change a bill. Uh, what we need now is like more people to lobby Congress and say, we need Congress to start working for America, not working for DC and New York. And I think there, I don't think it'll actually happen until you get actual violence in the street. Uh, I don't so, want to so, get into the whole swamp right. conspiracy thing, but. So, so what, what are the steps that are, that you see happening right now that maybe are avoidable, but you kind of think are steamrolling towards us? Um, derivatives. If you want to look at the the nuclear bomb that's under the table that's going to go off, that's going to hurt us, it's going to be derivatives, especially synthetic derivatives, that kind of stuff on the market. Uh, Long-term low interest rates are grossly distorting the economy. So why are the 55 and overcrowd going back into the workforce? Because their 401k, they thought they're going to make 7 or 8% per year, and then they're going to retire and play golf in Miami or whatever. All of a sudden, they decide they're making 1% or 2%, or they're losing 3 or 4%, and they're going back into the workforce. That's long-term low interest rates at work. That needs to be uh, adjusted. Debt. We have... Uh, the Democrats blame the Republicans, the Republicans blame the Democrats in Canada, the liberals and conservatives are blaming each other, but all of them are drunk on debt. They keep spending, 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 and as each year goes by, a greater and greater proportion of your tax money goes into just paying down debt. Uh, if you want to watch what's going to happen, watch the city of Chicago. It's probably very close to uh, an economic collapse. If we get another economic downturn, uh, Chicago is probably the primary example of the absolute worst way to run a government. So, so uh, let, let me ask about the debt, though. So, like, um, actual debt obligations, though, are, are pretty low because the interest rates are so low. So when we borrow a massive amount of money now, uh, the interest rates are so low, we're pay paying hardly any interest relative to GDP, maybe the lowest in history or the lowest since World War II. No, literally the lowest interest rates in history in 5,000 years of recorded but, but I'm, history. I'm, yep. I'm also looking at the ratio between how much the country makes over those yep. debt, debt over those interest income payments. Sort of thing, yeah. Because that's ultimately where the damage happens. Yeah. So ultimately, most people, and I'm one of them, believe that at a certain point, the, uh, the interest rates which had been held artificially low 
for an extended period of time. And now, in fact, we have negative interest rates in parts of Europe and parts of America as well. It's insanity. It does not make any economic sense, whatever. It is a way of trying to extend and pretend the, the current economic environment we have. Sooner or later, that's going to snap back. The system will go back to equilibrium and we'll go back to a more normal overnight lending rate of 3 4 5% or something like that. And, but we'll be when so addicted happens, to the debt yeah. that we'll be borrowing more and then the debt obligations you're saying might cause a problem. Yes. That's, that could be years. We're kicking in the can. So that could be years down. That could be next week. That could be years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but oh. that that's a ticking time bomb. And the politicians, the only thing they're doing is kicking it down the road because that's what they're good at. What do you think of like uh, like a UBI type of thing in, in, a, in a sort of transitory period to, to get us there? Like a universal basic income type of thing. And, <sighs> and let's, say, let's say it could be paid for with some sort of VAT tax and shutting down some social welfare programs, but replacing them with this VAT tax and replacing them with the UBI. We've had a couple of people in Canada pushing this. I know they've had a couple of experiments in Finland with this kind of stuff that why don't we just give everybody $1,000 a month? Uh, it may work. I don't know. I, I'm not a believer in that kind of idea because that to me is just like a, it's another sort of, you know, socialism by another form. Or it's capitalism. Like in Alaska, I had a capitalist uh, take, which is let's take the profits of the state and distribute it to the citizens of the well, state. Well, actually, their income tax was actually the other way around. The state paid you. <laughs> Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, which was fascinating. But I mean, most states can't do that because they're losing money like a sieve. My sort of problem with the whole uh, guaranteed income thing is, let's, let's just say hypothetically we give everybody $2,000 a month. By the time you turn 21, you get $2,000 a month. Great. Well, what's going to happen, of course, it's going to be, oh, I get my $2,000 a month, but I'm a special case. I've got a disease. I'm sick. I'm in a high unemployment area. I need more. I need more. I need more. And the idea behind a, a universal income is to get rid of the welfare program, get rid of the workers' compensation program, get rid of it, and just give everybody one program, and then you're done with it. But you know and I know, as soon as you had that program in place, all the special interest group would be, oh, we need more. We're special. We suffered from reparations. We need whatever. And you're going to be right back where you were, which is a massively complex a uh, highly expensive, non-functioning kind of social welfare program. Uh, another thing folks don't talk about is people talk about debt. What they don't talk about is unfunded liabilities. Uh, this is what's killing Chicago. This is what's killing Baltimore. This is what's killing St. Louis, is they have all these incredibly rich uh, benefits for teachers, firefighters, police, and all that sort of stuff, and no way to pay for any of it. So if you want to start talking about a universal income for everybody, where are you going to get the money? You don't can't even find the money to meet your current obligations, let alone taking massive new obligations. What if, and I, I don't know if you've thought about this, I'm just throwing this out there, what if the government simply sells everything it owns? So there's all this land, there's all these buildings, there's these public universities. What if the federal government and every state government just sells everything? Turn all the, turn, turn, all the public universities into for-profit uh, companies uh, uh, sell all the forests to whatever. So your argument would actually be, why don't the government get out of the business of running most things, go back to the business of government, running infrastructure, bridges, airports, defense, uh, yeah. that sort of stuff, and get the government the hell out of everything else. Uh, a very libertarian sort of argument. Uh, you probably would have found a great support for that amongst the founding fathers of the United States. I don't know, because that was very much their and, vision. And there's a way to be a libertarian where... Okay, you, you could say the role of government is to care for people who can't help themselves. So, for instance, no one individual can protect the country, so you have an army. But, and, and, and some people do need medical, are in medical situations, so they can't help themselves. But everything else, you just kind of sell and use that, those profits to pay down debt, and you're back to a more reasonable environment. Yeah. Uh, all I can think of is I'll give you an example uh, of where something happened. In New Zealand, 
in the 1980s. New Zealand used to be a part of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth had a set of preferred trading agreements. So New Zealand sheep, New Zealand lamb, New Zealand milk, New Zealand butter got preferential trade agreements with the rest of the Commonwealth. Then the UK decided to go the European route and they cut it off literally overnight. The New Zealand economy crashed and they were faced with exactly this problem. What is the role of government? What can it do? And uh, I just happened to know a guy who was in the New Zealand Treasury at the time, and he said one of the most devastating experiences of his life was to have the Minister of the Treasury come and say, we're cutting social welfare expenses by 50%. It's not that we want to, it's that we don't have the money. It's not going to happen. Cut everything by 50%. And he says what they started looking at was they have second and third generation welfare families that have four, five, and six, and seven kids. And guess what? Every kid you get, you get more welfare. Uh, so if you incent people to not work and have many kids, that's what you get. So guess what? All of a sudden they said, right, the state only represent, only recognizes two children. So if you have one kid, we might help you on welfare. Two, we might help you. Three, you're on your own. Uh, you're only going to be able to go on welfare for so many years, and then it's gone. Uh, we can't have second-generation welfare recipients. In Canada and the East Coast in particular, we've got second, third, and fourth-generation welfare recipients. This is killing us. It's killing the people. Uh, that's the kind of thing I think we really need to start going after is to say, as an individual, it is not your right to live a completely comfortable life by, by putting nothing back into the system. If you want to be a part of the system, if you want to gain benefits from the system, you have to contribute. Otherwise, you bleed the system to death. Unless you can't, unless you legitimately, honestly. If you, have, if you have some guy who's working down in the factory, some woman that works in a warehouse somewhere and they get crushed by a forklift and they lose their leg or something, okay, you have an obligation to help that person for an for possibly even an extended period of time. We, uh, that's probably actually, by the way, about 3% of your population. You will never get unemployment below 3% because there is a certain percentage of your population that's never going to cut it. Schizophrenia, disease, hearts, problems, uh, mommy beat them up too many times when they were a kid or whatever, and they're just never going to cut it in society. That's about 3%. And if you're going to run a civil society, you have to deal with that 3% somehow. And that means welfare. It means social assistance. Right. It means housing. It means whatever. But what, what we're looking at now is we've got like more like 10, 12, 15, 20% of society 50, is falling I think 50% of the U.S. is on some form of... Of social assistance of some kind, yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, how do politicians get elected? They promise free stuff to people. So the FSA, the free stuff army, is gradually taking over. And there's actually another expression for that. But anyway, so but this is, there, this is Bernie. Yeah. Is there any, is there any uh, hope? And I know you wanted to talk about um, kind of how the modern forms of terrorism, is this what you're saying is the modern terrorism? Is that it's kind of infiltrated the political system in a more insidious way rather than just striking terror? Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay, what a question. All right, uh, let's back up a little bit. Um, purpose of terrorism is to instill fear in a population to get the, po this, the political system to move the direction you favor. Uh, modern terrorism is different from, say, even back uh, 1880s or the 1920s. And terrorism, by the way, goes right back 3,000, 4,000 years. As long as we've had organized polities, we have had disgruntled people who want political change. They're willing to use violence to get it. That's terrorism. Back, interestingly, if you're back in the 1880s and 1900 and you were able to interview most terrorists or you read their books, you read their writing, you looked at their objectives, they saw themselves as fighting tyranny. They wanted to move societies ahead. They wanted to break down autocracy. They wanted to break down monarchies, that sort of stuff. That's the direction they were going. Or they were nationalists. They wanted to create their own countries for whatever reason. When you look at most terrorist groups now, and by this I mean the entire world of the Islamists and many of the other political religious groups, they actually want to impose tyranny. 
they've gone the exact opposite direction. So the nature of terrorism is actually changing from an ex, from a source that was trying to move things ahead in one particular political direction, and now it's coming back the other way. So societies that one might uh, argue are open, democratic, liberal in the old sense of the term, the Burkean sense of the term or whatever, uh, those societies now are being infected by terrorism, which is telling them they have to move towards an autocratic, despotic, supremacist kind of government. But but uh, but how how are they saying that? Because no one's using the words, no one's more, m m using the words in the U.S. or Canada. You got to be more despotic. Um, actually, so, so what, are the, actually what are the code read, words? If you actually, here's one of the problems. Very few people read Hitler's Mein Kampf when he wrote the thing, and somebody should have because it was an actual user's guide to where he was going. Very few people have read Bin Laden's two major works. Uh, very few people have read the Muslim Brotherhood works of guys uh, like Zawahiri. And I would tell people, read this stuff. They're very clear about what they're going there, very clear about what they want. Uh, and it is a supremacist system in which they will dominate, they will decide what's right and wrong, and everyone else will suffer under them. Uh, Mao, I mean, nobody read his little red book at the time, and maybe a few folks should have. Uh, nobody read Qaddafi's uh, green book, and they probably shouldn't have because it was crap. But um, so, 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 yeah, but so what's, what's happening act, in the They are US? actually literally telling us that Islam has the right to dominate others. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood Shura Council here in America put out a very clear statement back in the 90s exactly where they're going with this, how they're going to do it, and who the organizations are. And now you're actually seeing that bearing fruit in that you have a court case that was just lost where female genital mutilation, sexually mutilating three- and four-year-old girls is now becoming an acceptable practice in America because it's cultural and religious. Uh, we now see all kinds of these things starting to go on, and this is the result of many years of pushing from these kinds of folks. The whole narrative around Islamophobia is created mostly by the Muslim Brotherhood and a few others. Right, but but like take that as an example. It's it's that's never going to be. Uh, maybe I should should never say never, but you know that's never going to be the average person on the street saying that. I don't think. Here's the thing. Get back to earlier discussion. You don't need the average person on the street to believe it. You knew two, three, four percent of the population who are willing to work very hard to change the course of a society, and they can do that at a pivot point in history. Uh, a pivot point with, with a partnership, like like a, like a socialist partnership, you're saying? Yeah, so if, if you see America, let's say, got an actual depression or a, a serious recession starting next year, the year after, 2022, I don't know, whatever, um, and this is like a 1930s kind of depression, you are going to see all those groups that have been working so hard to create a grievance narrative, to create a political supremacist narrative, are going to be able to very easily push their agendas forward. So it would be uh, interesting to know what, if, if there was like a little black book, like just like Mao's Red Book of American supremacy, what, what it would look like. So certainly uh, uh, genetic, muti I mean, uh, you know, whatever. Female genital mutilation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Genital mutilation wouldn't be in that book. Or, or maybe it would be because now there's all sorts of stuff with little kids getting, you know, becoming gender fluid and, and these sad operations happening on kids who are not old enough to know anything. Um, so maybe that maybe that's related. I don't know. You're, you're kind of putting together this narrative that, that it's somewhat connected, that the culture wars and Islamophobia are kind of connected. Oh, very much so. Or not I mean, Islamophobia, but Islam, political Islamists. Political, the political Islam and the whole Islamophobia debate is driven by, uh, mostly by Muslim Brotherhood front groups. That's who's driving the entire Islamophobia debate. And what they actually do, and if you look at the uh, 
groups like Care USA in D.C. years ago recognized the entire debate around homophobia. They looked at that and said, hang on just a second, that actually works. We can use that and turn that around, turn that into Islamophobia. So anybody who says anything bad about Islam automatically becomes the bad person. You are a phobic. You are someone, there's something desperately wrong with you because you question radical Islam. So if I stand up and say in public, they say, look, I don't think the Koran should be the Constitution. I don't think God's law as interpreted by a certain group of people should be allowed to dominate my life. Oh, well, you're Islamophobic. And it's like, no, I'm not. That's a political statement. That's a political discussion. That's a part of the marketplace of ideas. But now you're not allowed to say that because you're Islamophobic. If you say female genital mutilation of girls who are two, three, four, five years old is wrong because nobody has the right to physically mutilate other people, especially children. Oh, well, you're Islamophobic. You're against the Muslim culture. And it's like, no, I'm against political Islam. Again, we need to get this free speech marketplace of ideas. So the whole idea behind my podcast uh, and hopefully the whole idea behind ThinkSpot uh, is to have groups like the Quiggin Report or the Possibly Correct Network and ThinkSpot is to actually start advancing these discussions and push them back into the public marketplace. Uh, or at I'm least not a, drive, so at least drive awareness that that all of these kind of disparate, seemingly disparate points are connected. Yes, there is in fact a culture war. I mean, I, I don't really like that term. I, it kind of makes me vaguely uncomfortable. But nonetheless, well, what term do you like that, conne that connects them? Uh, you know, what, what, what's connecting? Because again, I don't see. Um, the average person in Walmart saying, "Yeah, sure, gentle mutilation. Let's let's support it." Like, but what's what's connecting the, the dangerous extremist points of these that are not just saying, "Hey, this is our religious belief," but hey, but hey, this should be political belief as well. Yeah. So he herein kind of lies the 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 problem. If this was just a religious faith that wanted to do its own thing off in the corner somewhere like the uh, uh, the Mennonites or that kind of thing or the Hutterites that kind of go off and they live on the farm and they make non-GMO hay and do whatever. You kind of look at it and go, yeah, what, okay, but there's enough room in America and Canada for that kind of stuff to go on. But what you're getting now is these people coming in saying, no, no, I'm new here. You're going to have to pay me to be here. And by the way, you need to change your laws to accommodate me. And by the way, I want my law to be superior. It's like, whoa, whoa, hang on just a second. These guys we need to talk to. We need to drag them into the market square and expose them to people and say, this is not what we right, want. Right, but there's some intersection of ideas. Because again, the, uh, you know, you're connecting socialists and political Islamists, and there is an intersection, but it's going to be, it, you're saying it's basically going to be some mixture of all of these intersections that could potentially rise to power in the next uh, economic downturn. It's not going to be political Islam in, in the U.S. probably, nor might it be pure socialism. What is what is connecting all of these different groups to create the one or two percent that are going to what, what is connecting system. is a belief in a common ideology. They're uh, they're both collectivists. Uh, they're both anti-individualist. They are both anti-democratic. Uh, they are both hold very strong socialist Are they both anti-democratic? I mean, they're all in favor of elections. They're all in favor of elections until they win it. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hamas is the perfect example. They always say they're a great democratic force because they want an election. <laughs> That was 14 years ago. How's the next election coming? Uh, when the Muslim Brotherhood takes over in a place like they did in Bosnia for a while or they did in Egypt for a short period of time, Sudan, they're all about democracy and everything else until they're in power, in which case, uh, you know, all that stuff goes out the window. They're great believers in minority rights when they're the minority. When they're the majority, the minority rights disappear. Uh, so the other problem, actually one of the things analytically from an intelligence perspective, is it's fascinating to watch certain groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, like CARE USA, like the Muslim American Society, and see what they say in Arabic and then see what they say in English. Two entirely different messages. Uh, it's another thing to watch Al Jazeera, which is essentially the state propaganda arm of the country of Qatar, 
which is rising very quickly to be the single greatest funder of extremist causes around the world. And I mean that literally, they're displacing Saudi Arabia in that role. When you look at what Al Jazeera says in English, and then once you look and see what it says in Arabic, two entirely different messages. So, uh, so, so what are, are, is there a solution? Like what's, what's happening? Yeah, I mean, the solution to me is it's actually not all that difficult. The solution is free speech. Um, America and Canada and certain European states were founded in this idea of freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, the freedom to be economically active, et cetera, et cetera. If we had an actual open political discourse where you could take an idea, put it up on the podium and say, here's an idea, somebody believes this, let's all take a run at it and see what we think. Uh, that's basic free speech, that's debate. And if ideas are good, they'll kind of float up and along and they'll get stronger. If ideas are bad, they'll start disappearing back into the background and they'll go away. What we're being told now is, oh no, we can only debate that this idea is good. You're not allowed to say anything bad about it. And by the way, you're not even allowed to talk about any other ideas because there's a narrative you have to meet before you're allowed to speak in public. Uh, and what's actually truly tragic, I mean, here in New York, and I, again, I know where I am, I'm in New York and I'll say this, but the New York Times used to be the paper of record. And by the way, the New York Times used to have a staff of 70 fact checkers, all women, by the way, a long story, but the New York Times used to have a staff of fact checkers. So when the New York Times published something, that wasn't a guarantee it was true, but by God, it was close. And it was known as a paper of record. Wait, now, how, many, how many fact checkers are there now? Zero. Oh, by the way, zero. Yeah, there are, in fact, zero staff doing that at the New York Times. Now, that's the point of the thing, I guess. The other thing is, um, the New York Times has run a couple of articles by people who are leading figures in the Muslim Brotherhood. One guy whose father is like the biggest guy in the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt ever. They run these articles about, oh, how political Islam is being trounced upon or whatever. And, oh, it's terrible. We're victims and all that. They don't mention anywhere in there the fact the guy is a Muslim Brotherhood figure. So it's kind of like, wow, that never would have happened back in the, the grand old days when the gray lady was uh, was regarded as one of the world's leading institutions. So, so you, you wrote that in, in it knows me, uh, terrorism and tech. What, what's the, what's now the relationship between the two? I mean, I think of it in terms of cyber warfare, but is there another? Okay, there's, there's, a funny little, there's a funny little connection here as to why do people become terrorists? How do you combat terrorism? All this kind of stuff. One of the things we started noticing in 202, 203, 204 as we were dealing with terrorism and actually arresting and convicting people in Canada was we noticed a large number of them seemed to be software guys. They were IT guys. Uh, they were engineer guys and this sort of stuff. But what we started to notice was an absence of others. Why is there nobody who's a really good and, or really effective terrorist who's got a master's degree in political science? And lawyers, by the way, are massively underrepresented in the terrorist world. Because when you get into fraud and corruption and crime, lawyers are generally speaking overrepresented. But in this case, there's a near absence of lawyers who become effective terrorists. So when I went to Singapore and I was working in Singapore at Nanyang Tech and working with a lot of national security and terrorism issues, they were having the same discussion that they're noticing that most of the guys in Jam Islamiyah and uh, Hizbut Tahrir and in uh, Moro Islamic Liberation Front come from software backgrounds, technical backgrounds, and even the guys at the lower end were like assemblers at TV factories and this kind of stuff. And it's like, why are there nobody, why is there nobody with a sociology degree or why is there no social workers that become terrorists? See, and I'm telling you the degree is useless. Okay, so <laughs> actually, I uh, would, okay, so the, the actual... The conclusion that's come out of this after many years of looking at it is people who are taught engineering, software, and technology are taught cause and effect. You push this button, the wire, the electricity goes down that wire, this light comes on, that switch is thrown, and this response comes, and they're taught that is how things work, and your job as an engineer is to make that work in a variety of different ways. 
The political science person goes, why? Why does it do that? How does that work? How often does that happen? Can you prove that that is the reality sort of thing? People who are taught to accept things as they are in a cause and effect world will be told, all terrorism is a result of American intervention in the Middle East, ergo we need to attack America. Uh, now, the basic reality, of course, is the Middle East was a mess long before the United States was even created, let alone before the Americans started in, you know, messing in the Middle East. So it's untrue. It's not true that people say, well, if America got out of the Middle East, terrorism would go away. And it's like, yeah, I don't think so. There'd be lots of other problems. But folks who have an engineering, a IT kind of mindset are told, this is how the world works. You accept it and you go ahead and you work with it. Whereas the political science, the history and the ology people, sociology, psychology, whatever, or just average people are actually taught, stick your hand up and ask a question. So when, you know, the head of Al-Qaeda stands up and says, we must destroy America because America is the root of all evil. And you go, well, geez, don't you think there's been other problems in the Middle East that we created? Well, of course, you're going to get dragged out and shot because you're not allowed to question those kinds of things. So the reality is most of your more effective terrorists, guys that actually blow stuff up or kill people, which is to say Al-Qaeda, 9-11, the, uh, the London subway plot, uh, those kinds of guys, most of them have a technical background. And, so and that's a fascinating little part of the world to watch. And so, okay, now as... So maybe education is the answer. If we taught more people to ask more questions more often, we'd have less of these kinds of problems. Yeah, that's interesting to go into STEM with a more kind of liberal, and, liberal in the sense of like, hey, you understand how to think as opposed to yeah. just make... I, I'm so old, I remember when engineers were respected intellectuals because it used to be if, you know, the 1950s, 70s, and even into the 80s to a certain part, engineers were accepted to be competent engineers, but they're also expected to be broad, knowledgeable people who understood how the world around them worked, whereas now the STEM degrees are very narrow. So, so okay, so I, I want to take it full circle, or not quite full circle, but I want to take it full across the table. If someone like me doesn't really, I don't really like to involve myself too much in the news, in the world political situation, I think about my family supporting it. How can I solve problems that are entrepreneurial? How can I create innovation? How can I help people get informed? Like this podcast helps people get informed, obviously, but I'm thinking as an individual, I want to be happy and, and you know, family first friend, second kind of global society, third or fourth. What, what do I do? Uh, ask like questions to, to be happy. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to ask. I mean, okay, I just asked you a bunch of questions. Now I'm scared to death. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, oh, wow, what can I tell you? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the root of most of our problems, whether they're economic right now, whether they're political right now, is we have a professional political class uh, who have long since, I think, thrown the middle class overboard and they've particularly thrown the lower classes overboard and don't care about them. If we are going to make a change in Western society, I think two main things that come to my mind. One is free speech. If we don't defend free speech, everything else is lost. Well, it doesn't well, matter. Well, the let's assume we've lost is, that war, though. We've lost that war. Like, free speech is, is kind of on the decline. Yeah, I mean, people in Berkeley are rioting against free speech, whereas Berkeley University used to be famous for rioting for free speech. Uh, and that's actually truly disturbing when you look at it. I don't think the war is lost yet. Uh, I think a lot of ground has been ceded. It's going to be hard to make it back. Uh, but if we don't reestablish free speech, if we don't get back into the marketplace of ideas and intelligent public discourse, 
we are in moderate to severe trouble. And I think I think Spot is a part of that. The Quiggin Report is a part of that. The possibly correct knackware is a part of that sort of solution to that problem is to start literally pushing back in an organized manner because it's not going to come from the media, the mainstream media, the legacy media, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's not going to come from the politicians. They're going to have to be forced into it. So a guy like you holding a podcast talking about stuff like this, you are a part of the solution by the very fact we're sitting here doing it is an expression of free speech was a good thing. The second thing, however, you need to do is start focusing on your politicians and say, I, as a citizen, I'm not happy with the way things are going. Get your butts in gear and start working for us. Yeah, but get working for us. They all say that it almost has become a euphemism for vote for me and then business as usual. Like again, in terms of personal development, someone listening to this, okay, ask questions, start to question, you know, don't be an individual. Don't, don't just sign up for the menu of any one specific party. And by that, I mean, oh, if you believe in, you know, a by this political party, don't automatically believe in a through Z. So, so what, what else in terms of personal development skills, whatever. One of the other things I think that's another fascinating issue. This is a whole other discussion by itself is what is reality? What is truth these days? Because the, the mainstream media itself used to be seen as some sort of guardian of discussion or truth, or at least they were kind of moving in that direction. There was a sense there was some sort of fact-checking and some sort of reality in the media, even though there were, of course, always problems. Uh, but now between social media, between the mainstream media, whatever, what is reality and what is fake is incredibly difficult to understand. So one of my work, one of the things I work at, one of the things uh, it's in my books is where I stick a chapter in the back of the book on source reliability and information credibility. So people say, you know, the newspaper sucks, the news is suck, I can't watch CNN, I can't watch Fox, what do I do? And it's like, well, do read a newspaper, do watch news, whatever, do read a book, whatever, but say, look, first thing you have to do is source reliability uh, because you always hear this discussion, oh, the New York Times had a source this, uh, Fox News has a source that, whatever, and say, well, okay, what is this source? Does this source have access? Is the source credible? Is the source knowledgeable? Is the source being paid to do that? Does the source have an agenda? They have political leanings. Has this source proved reliable in the past? And try and determine if this source has any, credi uh, any, any reliability whatsoever. Where people fail, and this is a real problem in the academic community and it's a real problem in the political community, is once they think, well, this source might be reliable, then that's what they go with. But you have to actually divide the problem into two. You've got source reliability, and then over here you've got information credibility. Your source could be honest, they could be telling the truth as they best understand it, and they can still be wrong uh, because they're outside of their area of expertise. Maybe they work on the National Security Council, but they work on military affairs, they don't work on terrorism stuff. So they make a comment on terrorism, it could just be wrong. So you have to look at information credibility. So forget the source for a moment, just look at the information and say, is this credible? Is what they're saying making sense? So one, one example I always use because it's, uh, it's sort of a little over the top is to say, if a source came to you and said, you know, we just heard that the American government is going to launch a new fleet of aircraft carriers. They're going to build six new aircraft carriers. And this is super secret information, but we want you to know it. You might look at it and say, well, first off, who is the source? Let's go that. But then look at the credibility of the source and say, does this make sense? Well, the United States is a naval power. Most of your military power is based on naval power projection. So the idea of the American government's building a bunch of new aircraft carriers kind of fits. It kind of makes sense. It's kind of credible. So we'll lend that some weight. But if another country is said to be building an aircraft carrier, and like Singapore is the example I always use, modern country, technological, they're interested in power projection to a certain degree. 
but why would they build an aircraft carrier when they live in a very narrow strait where they wouldn't even be able to get the ship up to speed, let alone use it? So, you know, if you get this information that says Singapore is engaging in this new naval procurement program, you look at it and go, it just doesn't make sense. It's not credible, whatever. So at a simple level in your daily life, when you see something on the news, somebody tells you something, you're watching a podcast, you're having a discussion with your wife or something, and they say, well, this source told me that, or this person told me that, divide the problem into two and say, is the source coherent, reliable? Do they have access? Uh, do they have a financial reason why they're saying this? Are they selling their book, to use a, a financial expression? Uh, and then look at the credibility of the information and do that in two parts. And all of a sudden, your view on what is truth and what is real and what is fake and uh, what is you know, reality will change quite sharply. And I've actually taught this stuff in Canada to judges and to lawyers who work in the special advocate system, which is our national security courts. So we have lawyers and judges who have special security clearances so they can work on terrorism cases or national security cases. And I've taught this stuff to them. And some of this stuff is even news to, to judges and lawyers who work in this stuff, is that ability to separate the source from the information credibility and then think about it in a bifurcated way. So, so Tom, I feel like I could talk to you at least for another three hours. When are you coming back to New York and you come on the podcast again? Because I've I have 10,000 more questions. Okay, well, I mean, we're literally a few hours, uh, a couple hours flight up the road, so it's not a big thing. And yeah, I'd love to come back. I love having these kinds of discussions. One of the things I like about the podcast, like my podcast, The Quiggin Report, and being a part of this Possibly Correct Network, and one of the things I'm looking forward to in ThinkSpot is I'm one of those people who thinks you should put your ideas out there and you should be allowed to do that. It's important. But I want to hear people coming back at me because that's how you establish your own veracity. That's how you establish well, your own confidence is to be able to discuss with people. I go to universities to do guest lectures the odd time. And one of the things I love about it is students ask crazy questions. And a lot of times their questions are actually coming out of left field or they're questions that aren't really sensible. But all of a sudden, some student will say, well, you said this and professor so-and-so said that. And I read this in a book. What do you think about that? And you go, crap, I have no idea. Uh, that forces you to think. So sitting here with a guy like you forces me to think. Think thought of hopefully is going to draw people out. So it's going to force all of us to think. So yeah, love to come back. We got a whole bunch more to talk about. I'd love to go on the economy and cyber war, but that's yeah, yeah, story. okay, that'll be that'll be the next one. Look, we could even talk about that on on your podcast. I'll go on I'll go on yours at some point. We could we could chat about all that. So uh, look, you scared the hell out of me, but I I I kind of agree with everything you're saying. I gotta absorb it all. I encourage anybody listening to this to ask questions on, on Twitter and, and Tom will try to answer or, or I could try feebly to answer. Uh, uh, Tom, where's the best place where people can find you? Uh, on Twitter at Tom Tsek on there, uh, ThinkSpot. I'm a contributor at ThinkSpot. So we exist there and the Quiggin report and the possibly correct network of which I'm a part. You can, if you go on to there, you can find me and putting questions through that. Are, are you still work for the intelligence agencies in, in Canada? I no longer have an official formal connection to any agency or department of government. That sounds like uh, a Which yes. is why I'm allowed to think now. <laughs> Whoops, did I say that out loud? Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to ask, like, what country should I move to? But I kind of think there's no answer if, if the U.S., if your view is that the U.S. and Canada are going, so... Only half-jokingly, I've told the people, that, you know, I'm thinking about moving to the Dominican Republic. Uh... If everything else goes wrong, at least it's warm and comfortable and they got good food. All right. I'm not going to follow that advice, but fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I am either, I, but yeah. I, I'm sticking in, in New York City until the climate change people say it's underwater and then I might swim to New Jersey. So thanks so much, Tom. Uh, thanks for coming on. Tom Quiggin, thanks for coming on the James Altucher Show. And until next time. James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thank sir. You. 
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.